I think the problem that we've had is that we've, you know, we, we have, people decided that they didn't really want to work so much anymore through COVID and that has had a massive issue on productivity. You know, tradies have definitely pulled back on productivity. You know, they, they have been paid, paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years. And we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. I mean, there is a, there's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude and that has to come through hurting the economy, which is what the whole global, you know, the, the world is trying to do. The governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment to get that to some sort of normality. And we're seeing it. I think every employer now is seeing it. I mean, there is definitely massive layoffs going off. People might not be talking about it, but people are definitely laying people off and we're starting to see less arrogance in the employment market. And that has to continue because that will cascade across the cost balance. Welcome, folks, to Left Reckoning 135. That is Mr. Gurner himself, and we're going to jump into him in just a second. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Matt. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing uh, very well, David, and you are a little bit booming, actually, I'll say. So maybe oh, booming. Back okay. Back up yeah. a little bit. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, but I mean, we actually just said it sounded better before, but actually now it's a little bit much. But yes, that's okay. Tim Gurner, very aptly named. Um, that sounds like a Dickensian name of like oh, a rich guy trying to just squeeze more and more of people's lives. You know, let's reset because this is actually, uh, you know, um, we're going to talk about our boy, Tim Gurner here. Now, David, can you just set the table? I had not known a little bit of the Gurner backstory. He's this isn't mm -hmm. the first time he's uh, gotten our attention. Where might people know Tim Gurner from before? So, in addition to running a lot of ostentatious and frankly ridiculous uh, <laughs> private development uh, firms, which we'll get to in just a minute, um, this is also the guy who says the reason that you don't own a home, the reason that you don't have safety and security, is because you've been eating too much avocado toast. So really a gentleman who has his pulse on the finger of the global economy. The, yeah, the literal meme of um, absurdly individualistic and let them eat cake, sort of like, how dare you? Um, it, it, from a guy who's a, a parasite. Again, like mm -hmm. talking about tradies, I assume he means tradespeople, the people who actually build these It's like homes. an Australian, yeah. Yeah, these people who actually build the things that he owns far too much of. You actually put them into the ground and stand them up for decades. They they take too much is very rich. Um, but let's just take another run at that for folks. Uh, here is mm -hmm. him at the Property Summit talking about tradies. I think the problem that we've had is that we've, you know, we, we have people decided that they didn't really want to work so much anymore through COVID. And that has had a massive issue on productivity. You know, tradies have definitely pulled back on productivity. You know, they, they have been paid, paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years. And we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people mm. that they work for the employer, not the other way around. I mean, there is a... Now he's saying this, and as we said, like I think he, he himself is, is a parasite, but that doesn't mean he isn't vocalizing 
the actual policy of the United States, say the Federal Reserve Bank, mm-hmm. um, with regards to no, like, go ahead, David. Yeah, you know. No, I mean, that. I just want to like get into some, and there's a little bit more in the clip that we're going to play in a second. But I just want to say that this is one of those things because it's certainly struck a chord with a lot of people because it is so egregious. I mean, this is the way that people like that think about you. Right. That like if you are somebody who's demanding more, somebody who's not accepting low wages, bad working conditions, et cetera, you are a parasite, lazy, dangerous, and you need to be reminded of your place. Um, And, you know, thankfully, this is something that struck a chord with a lot of people. But it's always interesting to see how this gets sort of filtered through everyone's different ideology. Right. And one of the things that people have been trying to defend um, actually has been the Federal Reserve policy saying that like, oh, he's no, he's wrong about the Federal Reserve. No, we have Powell and the folks in the Federal Reserve saying that they want to raise interest rates so that there is exactly this happening. That is not a conspiracy yes. theory. That is straight up stuff that they have said because they believe the Federal Reserve's policy and other people who have been advising them, supporting them, et cetera, have been arguing that the reason that there is inflation is not because of greedy corporations um, charging too much money, which, by the way, that's what's happening. Um, it's because, oh, people have too much money in their pocket. Um, and so we need to take money out of their pocket by making the economy suffer. Um, so, yeah, anyways, when he's saying that, no, he, Matt, you're 100% right. He is yeah. actually expressing less, art- less articulately and more vulgarly, but the official policy of the United States Federal Reserve. Exactly. And, you know, Lawrence Summers does like a sort of a inside outside game he plays, but he's got the, he's got Joe Biden's number. And oh, yeah. Let's uh, a yeah. systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude and that has to come through hurting the economy, which is what the whole global, you know, the, the world is trying to do, the governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment to get that to some sort of normality. And we're seeing it. I think every employer now is seeing it. I mean, there is definitely massive layoffs going off. People might not be talking about it, but people are definitely laying people off and we're starting to see less arrogance in the employment market. And that has mm-hmm. to continue because that will cascade across the cost balance. <laughs> arrogance, uh, interesting uh, piece of work. I want to just talk about arrogance for a second because I, I want to yeah. get to the, the maybe the bigger thing. But like, let's also not let these guys get away with with their self importance. This is the company that this guy runs. This is the thing that is so socially valuable that he thinks you should have less money in your pocket, less food in your refrigerator, less opportunity to spend with your family, less free time, more time at work, more time being subservient to somebody like him. What is the social good that he's doing? Building crap like this, right? Unforgettable, beautiful homes for the rich and the powerful. Um, Saint Haven is uh, another project of of his. Let's see if I can get that up here. Um, a beautiful private club where you can sculpt your body, right? Another weird fetish of uh, the rich and powerful right now, the health and wellness thing. But don't worry. Um, you know, even though you know he does want working people to be more subservient, he wants there to be less be less arrogance in the labor market. Um, they do care about social responsibility, Matt, at the Gertner uh, group. So, you know, these liberals getting too mad. They're missing the fact that they have a climate pledge. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Cool. Um, and most importantly, Matt, um, they support their people. They support the health 
and well-being of our people, partners, customers, and suppliers remain as top priorities in our operations. We're also committed to the UNGC, the United Nations Global Compact principles, and measure progress against key areas of human rights, labor, environment, and anti-corruption activities. So I'd be very curious to see how him saying that, yeah, people need to be hurting more uh, plays into his commitment to labor. Um, I have a feeling that would probably be a very different answer than what I would give. It's you talk about yeah um, we need a, 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 the narcissism a, a, of these guys a problem with arrogance it's a trip for me mm. he was thirty five he was my age when he did the avocado toast thing you're gonna sit there and again you buy and sell bro well done mm-hmm. like could you wire anything in there what do you do you buy and sell. And you're going to tell people who work their entire lives, no, actually, you got a, another half decade. What's another half decade of your life spent building things that I can buy and sell? Is That is like literal psychopathy. See, the thing is, is that, like, you know, it's always interesting when you get a camera behind these kind of semi-closed doors environments where somebody feels comfortable to say these kind of things. I'll tell you this right now. If you are a capitalist out there, the best advice you could ever um, receive would be to be humble, bro. Look, there are entire parts of the American industry right now, like liberals and progressives love like all those progressive capitalists, right? Who are like, oh, I do this and that. It's like, well, no, you're still exploiting your labor, right? Oh, nice. You're giving us some money, man. Cool. Um, you know, that's the role you should be playing though, because yeah, the pitchforks are out there. People are suffering, people are hurting. And when they hear somebody like that, especially somebody like this, Who's what is the social value of this guy building more toys and special rooms uh, for the rich and powerful? I mean, that is some of the most socially useless crap out there. Oh, you're speculating on real estate, right? Oh, yeah, meaning less and less is affordable to the rest of us, right? You are not just a parasite on society, you're a parasite on all of those people whose labor actually builds up those kind of things. Somebody like that should be on their hands and knees daily, praising the people who have allowed him to fly around the globe, allowed him to be in a position where people listen to him, because it's not off the sweat of his back, it's off the sweat of thousands and thousands and thousands of other people who put him in that position. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I need to, this guy, maybe we need to do some follow-up investigations <laughs> under Tim Gurner. It's, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I don't want to get us into trouble um, with our corporate masters here at YouTube because um, all of his, his films, you know, I mean, like, I'll just put this on as B-roll while we're talking for a second. Um, uh, you know, he, it's just like the lifestyle luxury of, of these guys um, right. to turn the music off is, you know, it's, it's truly disgusting again to remember that like, this is what this guy is saying, like, man, it's getting harder and harder for me uh, to do this kind of shit. Right. Oh, like nice helicopters selling these kind of lives. It's getting harder for me to do that. So I think that everyone else needs to suffer dramatically, right? That everyone else needs to be rem- reminded that like, hey, I'm in charge here. So I can continue doing this kind of shit. So I can continue um, making a bunch of money selling these kind of insane absurd bourgeois luxury lifestyles to people right i mean like anyone doing it is disgusting but like at least like if you were hearing like a kroger ceo go on about us like at least there's like a grocery store or something at some point right listen to a guy who literally is just like oh you know i want to create lux um you know enclaves for the rich and powerful and you know these pesky tradies are getting in trouble now because they're doing things like asking for covid protections and doing things like asking for higher wages and better working conditions and not accepting it when i tell them to do something um saying maybe hey push it back a little bit being arrogant 
Lord help us all. Working people are arrogant. You're talking like this, doing this kind of shit. Working people are arrogant, right? I mean, it's you know, someone. <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what kind of PR spin they try to put on this later. But I, you know, yeah. I think Google's in it. And I'm sorry, somebody who you know sells this kind of lifestyle brand for a living. You know, this is good marketing for him, right? Right, because his clientele, they're probably feeling the same thing that you know my my employees are not uh, you know being nice enough to me and not thanking me constantly enough. Right. Okay. So I'm looking. He got like a big loan when he was 19 and bought a gym, nice. then sold that gym to another developer, and now he's been an entrepreneur since. Like, good job, man. We just got to get uh, into the life. You know why? The, the most base thing Obama ever said was, "You didn't build that," um, <laughs> yeah. because when you aim at the right people, that drives them fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. You bought a gym with a loan. Mm-hmm. And then you sold that for a, you sold it for a game. That's not that's not anything anybody I think should be impressed by. I'm sorry. I think that's like that's like gambling, except the odds are much better than they are in a fucking casino for capitalists. <laughs> yeah, because the game is rigged. Like yeah, exactly. Like for oh, oh, great, you sold the property for a rise in value. That's not exactly like winning roulette, right? <laughs> like there's there's things that are going in your, your fashion. So I'm not impressed. And I think it's absolutely just despicable. I don't know how people get up in the morning saying, are you millions of people that actually work and didn't get to like, you know, put a loan money onto a gym and then sell that mm-hmm. gym. You work, give more of your life to people like me so I can sell your gyms. So we're going to get to some of the movements that are challenging this, but I do want to note again, like, I'm, when I see something like this go very viral online, it, it gives me a lot of hope. I'm glad to see people uh, piss. And people are mad at the way he's talking about labor, the way that he things that he wants to do. But he's also getting at a really important point here um, that I think sometimes people miss is that when it comes to our struggle with with capitalists, right, so much of the conversation that we have is about the wage, right? Obviously, a very important thing, right? We want higher wages for workers, of course. But there's one thing that capitalists fear more than, you know, giving a 15, 20% increase in wages, and that's giving working people more power. And that's what he's reacting to here. Remember, he's talking about productivity. He's saying he's not able to exploit his workers at a high enough rate. And one thing that capitalists worry about, and one thing that the people who manage this economy for the capitalist class worry about is something called full employment. The idea that if you are facing a bad deal, if your employer is abusing you, if you are working in under conditions that are unsustainable for you to be able to live a normal, thriving life, that you have the opportunity to walk away and get a different kind of job. That's what he's reacting to right here. That's what he's so fearful of is that, you know what? People are saying no, right? And they want to have this whip of um, desperation right? Of the fear of being unemployed, of not having access to food, of not having access to housing to keep people subservient. And that is why under capitalism, they will always run from full employment. It's an absurd thing when you think about it, that this system is so messed up that providing jobs for every person who wants and is able to work is bad policy for the capitalist system, right? What happened to the system of productivity and grit and rise and grind? No, they create unemployment purposefully because it is a tool of discipline against working people because if you ever want to stand up and say no to a boss you'd better damn be very scared of what's going to come if you get fired and that's the power that this guy is complaining about feeling that he's losing in australia right now 
right, is the ability to threaten people's very life if they cross him, if they disobey him. That's the kind of subservience that this system tries to cultivate, cultivate. And the way that they try to create that system is by creating artificial scarcity, artificial scarcity of wages, of housing, and in this case, and most importantly, of employment. Making sure that your ability to su survive, your ability to sustain yourself and your family is tied to your relationship with this kind of exploiter, right? That is the engine of this system. Yeah, and I mean, that's fundamentally why you the goal is to uh, overthrow capitalism because it can't exist without this. And I, I think that's kind of like you said, like the w different ways this is fielded and interpreted. Mm -hmm. I think there's certain people that think like he's like a Shkreli or something, mm -hmm. but like fundamentally he's just elaborating again, what the driver of current fed policy with the, regards mm -hmm. to uh, interest rates. So let's get to some of the answers to this um, for, for a moment. And I will just say, we're going to talk about the UAW, the United Auto Workers Union. What's, if you have not been paying attention, this Thursday, contract expires. Potential of one of the largest strikes in recent history happening right here in the United States. This is one of the most important moments um, in labor. This is something you should be following closely. These are people you should be supporting. We've talked a lot about Sean Fain and the movement that's put him into power and this contract negotiation. I wanted to just note one thing in, in, in response to that first segment. One of the things that is really important about the way that Sean Fain has been framing this struggle is that it's not just about wages. It's not just about wages. It is about free time, right? So there are wage demands that are part of this contract negotiation, but there are other demands in terms of contracts, in terms of people's ability to have free time, um, people have security when it comes to scheduling. These are the kind of expansions on the labor movement that are really important for us to reclaim because the labor movement for so long being on its back foot um, has one, taken a lot of concessions. And then two, whenever it goes on the offense, it's almost solely about the wage. Particularly if you are a socialist, if you're somebody who wants to confront capitalism directly, understanding that you know when you're solely and only talking about wages, you are missing you know, 50, 60% of the rule that capitals have over us. But anyways, we're gonna get more into that in a second. Let's talk, uh, let's play this clip right here um, because he speaks to, if you could have it set up for us, Matt, um, he speaks to this economy and this world um, that our good Australian friend was just describing. Um, and, and Jake Tapper's gonna ask him a question about what happens if the UAW goes on strike and who's gonna be harmed by it. And I think this is a great response. When workers ask for their fair share, it's always the end of the world. And, you know, um, no one, you know, the last four years in general, okay, in the last decade, these companies made a quarter of a trillion dollars in profit. In the last six months alone, they made 21 billion in profit. In the last four years, the price of cars went up 30%. CEO pay went up 40%. No one said a word. No one had any complaints about that. But now, God forbid that workers actually ask for their fair share of equity in the fruits of the labor and, and the product they produce, and all of a sudden it's the end of the world. So, um, you know, if, if uh, you know, the talking heads, the pundits, the companies want to say that, you know, if we strike, it can wreck the economy. It's not that we're going to wreck the economy. We're going we're gonna to wreck their economy, the economy that only works for the billionaire class. It doesn't work for the working class. Hear that, analysts? All right. UAW President Sean Feng. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate it, sir. We did invite the big three automakers to come on. They declined. The invitation is open. 
That framing right there, I think, is absolutely perfect, right? Oh, these folks are, um, you know, oh, they're going to wreck the economy. They're going to hurt the economy. No, they're going to hurt the economy that benefits these few. They're going to wreck the economy that is allowed for these big three automakers to exploit in mass the UAW workers. They're going to wreck the economy of little fancy boys like Tim Gurner down in Australia um, who think that he should be able to hold more of a whip over your head. That is exactly the kind of shit I want to be seeing from the labor movement right now. And it's super damn exciting that they're they're set up in the way that they are. The thing about the UAW strike that is really exciting um, is in addition to the militancy that we're, we're seeing, um, to, um, to some of the demands that we're seeing, um, to some of the framing that we're seeing from Sean Fain, is the fact that the UAW has, I think, an $825 million strike fund. For people who don't, understand, who don't think about labor, maybe in the more strategic sense, that is massive. That means that they can sustain and support their membership throughout a prolonged strike. That's a number that... The folks in the big three automakers, they have up on a wall somewhere, right? Because that is a huge threat to them. People remember when we were talking about the um, longstanding strike in Alabama um, with uh, coal miners. One of the things that they came up against early was um, limited strike funds, right? Because it meant that people had to sort of take care of themselves. This is exactly the kind of thing um, this is like the, the real advantage that the, that the UAW has going into this potential strike. Do want to shout out, um, while, uh, we see him in here, our good friend, Paul of, uh, the TDU, the Teamsters Democratic Union is there says, hell yeah, I'll be on the picket line on the GM plant in Langhorne, Pennsylvania on Friday. I love to hear it. I mean, this is looking like it could be for real. I mean, there's still a couple more days of, an, um, of negotiation, um, going forward. One thing that Sean Fain has been really adamant about in a lot of his uh, public interviews in, in the past couple of days has been that we gave them our demands months ago. We said, this is what it is. We're not going to get some kind of last minute, oh, reopening of negotiation. They've been sitting on this for a long time and they need to move before we even touch negotiations. So we don't know what's going to happen over the next 48 hours, but it's looking really, really damn promising for the UAW membership right now. Yeah, membership seems pretty uh, universally um, supportive of going on strike, it's, given the I mean, management's posture. It seems like it. And, um, you know, shoot, I don't have it up. Um, but I got to say, like, you know, this may be the media brain of me. I, I love, like, Sean Fain's little moves and things like that. You know, he's been doing these uh, kind of office hours Q&A streams. And... Uh, in the most recent one, he does this whole stream, and you might notice not notice it at first, um, but sitting right behind him is this trash can that's filled up with paper, <laughs> and it says "Big Three Auto Proposals." Right, so and people know we've played the video before of him throwing those uh, negotiating tactics of of their opponents in the trash. I mean, so this is something that's going to be really huge, and I think that this is again, if you are a socialist, if you are a progressive, whatever, this is the kind of thing that you need to be supporting. Um, so we're going to be watching this closely. Certainly, we'll be covering it again on Thursday during the Griscom stream. Um, before we get to Kurt and, and start talking about uh, Mexico, I also just want to know one more thing um, that the UAW has been doing right, and it is this right here. When you spoke with the lead uh, a week ago, you made some headlines by declining to say when or if you will endorse, endorse President Biden for re-election, saying that the union's endorsement uh, has to be earned. I assume is that still how things stand? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, we have a lot of work ahead of us, a lot to be to be done. And, uh, you know, as we say, our endorsements are going to be earned, not freely given. And actions are going to dictate endorsements. So 
we'll see how things uh, continue to play out. And uh, we have a lot of issues to resolve. I mean, there's a lot with the EV transition that has to happen. And uh, there's, you know, hundreds of billions of, of our taxpayer dollars that are helping fund this. And workers cannot continue to be left behind in that equation. President Biden considers himself to be the most pro-labor president ever. Do you see him that way? Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done in that category. <laughs> I, I look back at FDR and presidents such as that time frame and, uh, you know, that did a lot of work. for. <laughs> exactly right. No, and I mean, like, this is the tactic. This is the move right here saying, hey, we're not going to endorse a guy who is undercutting unions right now. We're not going to endorse a guy who is allowing these companies to take tremendous and generous government subsidies and use that to try to undercut union contracts. No more rubber stamping. We will play a role in politics, and that is going to be an active role, meaning we're not going to spend our time not focusing on our membership. We're going to focus on the fight in front of us, but we're not just going to be backup and backdrop in a commercial for a president who has made it very, very clear time and time again that he likes the campaign on being a pro-labor president, but when it came to the workers in Alabama, he wasn't there. When it came to the railroad strikers, he wasn't there. When it came to the Teamsters, he wasn't there. Um, right now, the UAW and, and, and the leadership there, I think, is making the right call, saying the right things, and setting themselves up for a pretty historic moment. Yeah, I think it's it's really um, I think easy to understand and admirable um, to not immediately jump in behind Joe Biden uh, on this and say like yeah if you want to be if you want to keep talking like that and keep being I'm the most pro union president ever first of all not that big of a boast when you look yeah. at actually the presidents we've had in this country um, and so like let's you know, actually do something. Let's actually do something uh, to to get that. I think, I, I can't imagine anyone having a problem with that. No, I mean, but they will, man. They already are. But um, anyone reasonable, right, is what you got to say. <laughs> right. Um, well, do we want to say anything else uh, before we go to Kurt? Um, uh, you know, there's just one thing, speaking of uh, Joe Biden and the administration here, because uh, Kurt touches on this with with regards to AMLO's record on poverty reduction and the sort of implicit message there that that is a choice, it's a policy choice mm -hmm. for people to be immiserated and that choice can be undone. There was a thread that's been getting a lot of attention that I recommend people go check out by Catherine Rampell. I believe she's a uh, Washington Post. Anyway, um, basically shows that uh, and I'll cut out of here because I'm probably cutting out, but um, poverty went down a whole lot because of pandemic era um, poverty reduction measures and things like that that were allowed to expire. And what's frustrating is, uh, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris tweeted out, our expanded child tax credit helped cut child poverty by nearly half, but congressional Republicans allowed it to expire. POTUS and I will continue fighting for American families because every child deserves the opportunity to thrive. Now, it's true that uh, there's no Republicans that wanted to uh, save that thing, but the actual truth, the other line truth that is going to drive everyone crazy who pays attention is that Democrats controlled this, and it was because of Joe Manchin and Cinema uh, mm -hmm. Democrats that that wasn't um, maintained, and that again, like um, that's a choice. We choose to have five million more kids in poverty now. And uh, do we have the stomach to actually confront 
the reason for that, or do we just going to shadow box against Republicans? Like, we know Republicans don't support it. Great. What are you going to do about the people who decided in your party to not exercise power to save those people from fucking poverty? Mm. No, I mean, I'll just say this. Um, it, it is a choice. It is 100% a choice. And and people who can't imagine a different world um, aren't thinking big enough, right? Um, there are tremendous examples from American history, for example, of presidents and political leaders putting pressure on people. There are things you can do behind the scenes. These are, you know, members of, of your party. You enact discipline on that party if you're the president of the United States. That is how the party system works in this country. Um, so, yes, one, there is internal discipline that you can be putting on those folks. Two, you can be confronting those forces, right? I'm talking about the cinemas and the mansions out there directly not in the whiny kind of like msnbc way oh my god it's so terrible and so complicated these interesting and you know obscure figures from west virginia and arizona are causing so much trouble no you come out there and you say um i'm the president of the united states and cinema and mansion are saying that we don't think that children should be raised out of poverty we don't think that we should be providing better jobs for working people and you make those people own it instead of this kind of clandestine you know six page of the newspaper final segment on the msnbc show you wage war the, and not through your surrogates not through your surrogates right on talk panels and for people who are cued into the media you directly put pressure on those people and we saw very little of it from joe biden in fact we saw them running away um, from these kind of COVID policies that ended up doing tremendous amounts to alleviate people's suffering, things that should have absolutely been made permanent, things that they should have maintained. Um, and instead, you saw them sprinting away because they wanted to do the kind of mission accomplished um, spectacle when it came to the COVID-19 pandemic. That's not just bad politics. Fundamentally, that is cowardice. Right. And it's a it's a calculated cowardice, too, because one thing that gets me mad about people who criticize Biden is like, oh, you know, he's he's timid. He's like, no, this is somebody who has direct relationships with the rich and powerful in this country, whose party is making a calculated move not to be a party of working class people, not to be a party of folks who are suffering under the system, but a party of the educated elite in the United States of America. That has been the campaign strategy of the Democratic Party since 2016. And it is going to. You know, might work out for them every once in a while, right? Hey, maybe it's good politics for them. Um, maybe that's the world that they want. But when it comes to actually delivering for everyday people, it will always be a failure because that coalition of the rich and the powerful, they don't want to see these things upended. Just like that guy that we started the segment with, Gurner. They always want people to suffer. And it doesn't matter if they donate money to the Democratic Party or if they donate money to the Republican Party. They want to see the same kind of conditions, subservient labor, people struggling because it makes them money. And those people are just as much a part of the base now and influence, influential members of the Democratic Party as anybody else. So it is a calculated cowardice, not just so yeah. and sort of not thinking these things through. It's a decision. It is a choice. Exactly. Like, I don't know if by numbers that they have like the, the sort of power, but by in terms of who's being catered to explicitly by the leadership of the party, it is those people. I mean, this mm -hmm. is the same Chuck, Sh the Chuck Schumer, the last 2016 election. So like, oh, Trump's having some marginal success with workers and districts we need will win more people in the suburbs they lost and like i think that's why in the context of this interview with kurt talking about amlo doing the class realignment and doing basically the exact opposite thing of uh, of the democrats here which is like, oh you actually appeal to working people and then you have real popularity and i like i said like i don't know that like this is electorally un 
you know, feasible for the Democrats to do, but it's immoral. It, mm-hmm. Like it's leading to like disgusting outcomes where you're throwing kids back onto poverty after a massive reduction and you can't even really elaborate why. You can't be mm-hmm. honest with anybody who's fucking paying attention. You think anybody who's paying attention, they're going to see that and they'll be like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Is Joe Manchin a fucking Republican? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, folks, we're going to go uh, to Kurt in just a second. Just want to remind everybody that if you like the show, you want to support it, you can support us over at patreon.com slash left reckoning. And you get something for that too. You get access to the post game, um, the Sunday show as well, right? You're getting um, two to one content on the other side. And we got a special treat uh, for everyone tonight. Matt and I are going to be doing a run through of something that's been getting a lot of buzz, something that I have to say truly did blow my mind, which is Jimmy Dore's freak out on presidential candidate Cornell West. So we're going to be doing an in-depth look at that in the post game, patreon.com slash left reckoning. If you want access to that, just a quick programming note too. Um, Matt is still a little bit under the weather, so we're not going to be able to do a full call in section. If you do have a call, we will only play calls that are 30 seconds or left. I'm sorry, um, but it's just for time-wise and for Matt's constitution, uh, we can't go on longer than that. So if you have something you want to say, you can ask it quick, 30 seconds. We'll play it. Uh, if not, just wait till later. We can get to them uh, when, when we're just quick question. And yeah. we might try to do some, we might be moving, doing some programming changes. Let people... People might you might want to let us know how you feel about this Patreons, um, but think about maybe doing a more collaborative monthly thing with uh, people and uh, instead of the uh, weekly calls. But we'll just to float that out there. But yeah, mm-hmm. I I got COVID. I was tested negative. This is a weird thing. Both I and Sam tested negative. I thought I was like just sort of fatigued from travel, like mm-hmm. idiotically after I got the negative tests, and I'm like, oh, I got allergies. Which is like the stupid, very stupid looking back. I mean, yeah, that's time. how it always goes, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so now everybody in everybody in the um, majority of parts sick except Bradley, who was at the Jersey Shore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh yeah, so, getting strong. But, um, well, folks, we're gonna go over to Kurt. The, then we'll be in the post game patreoncom reckoning. Always great to have Kurt on to talk about Mexico. Hope you all enjoy the conversation. Welcome back, everybody. Left Reckoning. You know, the world is filled with a lot of mysteries, and there's been some mysterious stuff happening in Mexico. Um, as the AP uh, reported, Mexico's poverty rate declines from 50% to 43.5% in four years as remittances almost double. Now, what could be behind that? Um, despite uh, you know these very exciting statistics, the AP reports that it was very unclear as what was behind the reduction in poverty. To maybe help us look into this mystery, uh, we have our good friend and journalist down there in Mexico, uh, Kurt Hackbarth, on to join us. Kurt, I mean, what is this mysterious thing that's going on in Mexico right now? Well, I think it's um, some kind of multiverse. You know, I think Mexico reduced poverty in another multiverse, and they managed to kind of funnel it into this one. <laughs> Pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. You think there's no, uh, you know, high tech going on down here? Well, there is. There is. Um, it's really funny, isn't it, that the the kind of intellectual acrobatics that the U.S. wire and press services go through to not look at the obvious which is that, you know, somebody's been in power for five years in Mexico. His name is Lopez Obrador. And poverty has reduced substantially, as this Conaval report um, came out with very recently, during his administration. So instead of just saying that, <laughs> they have to go around and try to find any other kind of contortion to try to explain it away, right? 
And that's what we see here. And, um, you know, as you see right in the headline, it said remittances, you know, are up. And they mm. are. Remittances are, you know, the money that uh, Mexicans living in the U.S. Um, send, send home, right? But as two very important, um, you know, economists have talked about in Mexico, Gerardo Esquivel and, and Mario Campa, um, remittances are important, but we're talking about 1% to 2%, you know, mm. of that you know, uh, economically compared to a lot of other things. So there's this giant attempt to say, well, it's it's U.S. businesses um, who are, you know, moving to Mexico. It's the nearshoring process. It's remittances. Instead of just looking at some very important factors, mm-hmm. one being um, AMLO's series of social programs, including universal pension, uh, including stay-in-school scholarships, including farm support, you know, a whole raft of uh, universal which they hate, universal social programs, not means-tested. So that's one thing. Um, but another thing that's actually even more important has been uh, upward pressure on wages. Mm-hmm. And that's something that they really don't want to talk about. Uh, and that's had to do with, you know, uh, rises in the minimum wage of about 20% every year. So it's gone up about 100% in real terms over the um, over AMLO's period. And that's including, you know, with inflationary pressures that have been worldwide. And um, those minimum wage um, hikes have spilled over into a number of union contracts. You know, a number of union mm-hmm. contracts, minimum wage goes up, well, then, you know, we've got we've to go up as well. Right? Another big thing has been um, the outsourcing law, which has really reined in what companies can use for outsourcing. So a company now in Mexico cannot outsource its primary function. It has to declare what its primary function is, and it can't outsource that. It can still outsource secondary functions to the company, but not the primary one. So that's has pushed several million people into uh, formal employment, where they have then benefits and you know uh, all of the bells and whistles that go along with that. And that's also added to this upward pressure on um, on wages. So you know it's all right there in front of you. They just don't want to look at it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I wanted to go a little bit more in depth into some of these things that are affecting it, but I don't want to skip over the headline um, in, yeah. in the dunk on, on the AP. I mean, could you talk about the, this report here and what's been happening to poverty in Mexico? I mean, because it's truly striking um, at this point. It is. And I think one of the important things about these numbers, um, Coneval is an autonomous federal agency, so they have complete autonomy. So, I mean, you know, they're only the most rabid right-wingers who are kind of saying, oh, the statistics mm. Right. I mean, these are you know, the kind of all is a respected institution. Um, what it said is that five million people have have come out of poverty over AMLO's term. And if we look at the that number from the height of the pandemic, you know, when people had uh, were at their worst, economically speaking, it's nine million, nine million people. Right. Mm. So it's it's been a decline that's 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 gone down uh, like this. Also, and I think this is very important, inequality has reduced. It's still high. But it's, you know, it's gone down from 22 times, the top 10% and the bottom 10%, to 15 times. Um, they've also reduced inequality between the north and the south in Mexico, which is very important because you know, Mexico has a north-south divide uh, very similar to, to, to the U.S. in that sense. Um, also, you see gains in, in areas where the gains were most needed, uh, indigenous populations, rural populations. Mexico has a huge urban-rural divide for, you know, raft of historical reasons uh women right um it's the numbers were better even than the amlo administration had expected Mm -hmm. 
actually. Mm. So he's he's taken a, a well-deserved victory lap on them over the last couple of weeks. Right? Um, and the dunk, <laughs> um, <laughs> which we have to say is, you know, the New York Times in 2022, you know, mm. in, under, under the auspicious pen of uh, Maria Ali Habib, then the bureau chief in uh, Mexico City, came out and said, point blank, AMLO's social programs are hurting the poor. Just like that. I mean, not even any, you know, kind of maybe this, maybe that. No hedging. Um, they just said that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that these were programs that were just throwing money away. They're universal programs. Poverty was being reduced. Uh, poverty was going up. Poverty did go up temporarily during the pandemic, as it did everywhere. <laughs> um, and now, a year later, they have absolute egg on their faces. Mm-hmm. And instead of having, you know, the minimal kind of journalistic ethics to say, all right, we got this one wrong. Let's do an update on the article. Or let's do a new article. I haven't seen yet one on the poverty statistics. Hmm. I haven't seen one yet. Maybe they have. I've been looking. Nothing. And that's just, you know, that's just juvenile. You know, evidence, evidence that disproves something that we splashily asserted, we'll just ignore. Well, I mean, especially, especially, sorry, um, but just like, especially in that piece. And if I remember correctly, I think we might have done a, a segment on that at the time. You know, they, they relied on the classic trope um, yeah. of not just like criticisms of AMLO, but criticism of a lot of left wing leaders, which is like some economists say. Some say <laughs> and now you actually have concrete numbers from uh, like a very reputable source here saying yeah. actually in fact like things not only haven't gotten worse they've gotten significantly better significantly historically better. better for people mm-hmm. yeah i mean it, it truly it really does boggle the mind and as we say every time we bring you on it's like extremely dangerous and worrying to see the kind of parallel universe between what's actually happening on the ground in Mexico and the way that the the typical New York Times reader and MSNBC viewer is sort of thinking about uh, the country. It's absolutely right. And, you know, I think the most dangerous part of that is that it feeds this classic American hypocrisy of saying we're against immigration. We hate immigration. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't immigrate. You know, Kamala Harris, don't come. But mm-hmm. any Latin American government that tries to do anything to benefit their people and then succeeds at it, they get shat on. Sorry if I can't say that on this program. No, you can't. By the same, <laughs> by the same people who then say they're against immigration. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the biggest, most mind-boggling hypocrisy. And it really um, shows out these elite journalists for who they are, right? They're not above dissembling. They're not above lying. They're not above editorializing in a news piece. And then, you know, they give each other awards. They just they give each other Pulitzers and stuff. They just, you know, trade awards back and forth. And then, you know, done their tour in the Mexican Bureau. And then, oh, I survived Mexico, colleagues. And me <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, um, and, and like one thing about it too, and I was hoping maybe we could put a little bit more meat on like, you know, what some of these programs and, and policies were, I know you outlined them a little bit yeah. at the top, but I think one thing that maybe like our audience, because all of our audience is very smart people, they know all these things already. One thing to recognize is that like, yes, absolutely. There's an aspect here about like, you know, protecting like American imperial interests and, you know, the idea that like all of these countries are just always going to be backwards, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But there's also an aspect to AMLO in particular, 
or because of the way that he has been one gaining popularity and fighting poverty in the country, it is like the direct antithesis to like the Bidenomics or the neoliberal policy in the United States. So it's a dual threat. Like one, they don't want to make AMLO look good, but two, if they had to admit anything, it also sort of discredits the domestic argument of papers like the New York Times about how you deal with economic right. policy. You, we can't have a good example. The, a good mm -hmm. examples can be very dangerous, right? Uh, the Biden administration temporarily expanded the welfare state during COVID and then got rid of it, dismantled it, right? Whereas AMLO has, has made them permanent. Actually, programs like the uh, Universal Pension are now in the Mexican Constitution. To, that makes it that much more difficult for any future government to come in and, um, and dismantle it, right? Uh, and that pension is going up 25% next year. Right. So, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's been, it's been a life changing thing for a lot of people here. Um, mm -hmm. millions of people, right. And we can go into that in, in some more detail. And then, you know, I think the other factor to talk about is there's just, you know, out and out racism against Latin America. Any, any mm -hmm. president like AMLO has to be a messianic populist, um, off the charts, mystical, uh, lunatic. Right. So that's why I think it was AP or Reuters, right, um, a few years back was saying AMLO likes, thinks that COVID can be contained with amulets because that is, you know, somebody had given him one on a tour, right? One of these mm -hmm. Guadalupe version I've got my detente, right? He said it as a little joke at the end of his press conference, right? But the U.S. took it and ran with it in the press, mm -hmm. right? AMLO made a little thing in the press and there's, you know, he's very good on social media about um, this mystical being called the Alushe in, in the Yucatan, right? And then I think it was Reuters that said, the president said he saw an imaginary being in a tree in the Yucatan, and he appeared not to be joking. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, AMLO, every, besides everything you said, but the danger of the example, AMLO can't be doing anything right because, like any progressive leader in latin america he's a progress he's a you know messianic religious mystical lunatic that's the way they see him mm -hmm. and they simply can't see it that way and so any results hard data that prove that he knows what he's doing has to be minimized or distorted or ignored or oh it was the remittances oh it was u.s businesses oh it was you know rational u.s businesses and why are u.s businesses coming to mexico if mexico is such a disaster they don't talk mm -hmm. about that part either. Why are Asian businesses coming to Mexico if Mexico is such a disaster, right? I mean, it's, it, it begs, the argument begs the question, right? Uh, why is Tesla, for good or bad reasons, you know, locating to, 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 to Nuevo León? You know, and it's not just, um, you know, lower wages, because actually wages are on the rise. They're still too low, mm -hmm. right? So on one hand, the idea is Mexico is just this cesspit of violence, but then businesses are coming here. So, you know, try to parse that out. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, let's let's jump into that a little bit. I mean, could you talk um, a, a bit about for people who you know have been watching all of the the great coverage we've been doing on this program with you for the past couple of years? Yeah. Um, could you talk Excellent. a little bit about um, the expansion of of you know the the welfare system, also some of the forces that are leading to these these higher wages, both both like political and economically? Yeah, let's go into that. Sure, a little more detail. Um, the biggest problem in Mexico um, is that. Benefits, they kind of copied the U.S. system of benefits coming through your job, right? Health benefits and such, right? 
kind of the U.S. model of they deduct from your check and then the employer does their part. So the problem with that is, you know, half of Mexico or more historically has been in the informal economy, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, you have your own little business or you, you know, you're selling something in the street or you're, you know, you're in the informal economy. So you're not in that formal system. That's always been a huge problem in, in, in Mexico. So how do you break that? So AMLO has um, set up a series of social programs that are universal. So they cover people who are not in that universal system, right? I'm sorry, not in that, um, the formal system, right? So one of them was the pension that we talked about, right? And that's, you know, universal pension to all, you know, 65 and over, right? Um, Across the board, no means testing, no games, you get it. Uh, another one is the uh, the stay in school scholarships, which is you know um, a program that helps kids stay in school, right? Kids, you know, you stay in school because obviously dropping out has always been a, an issue because you have to. You know, a lot of these kids have to work, they have jobs, um, you know, they show up, they've been working, they haven't uh, eaten, you know, it's just, and so they drop out. Right? So uh, the scholarships, you know. Um, have helped uh, in that area. Another one has been um, a really interesting um, farm program called Sembrando Vida, which is planting life, which um, brings people together in rural areas to plant trees, right? They can plant trees on, on their property as long as they prove that they're planting them or in public areas to kind of beautify the area. And it's really interesting. I went to a rural area in Oaxaca and I was kind of seeing how it works. They set up their own like plant nurseries and they, they do plant husbandry, they trade seeds, right? Um, so it's not just here trees, plant them. It's they're mm-hmm. setting up groups of people. The, the program is run by people themselves um, to, to set up a network of nurseries, a, a seed banks, um, you know, all these ways to, 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 to plant and kind of keep the cycle going. So it's not just like, oh, we planted some trees, then nobody's going to take care of them. The trees wither and die. The program ends and that's it. Right. Which is what happens a lot of times. Right. So the idea is to set up groups where the program will continue and become uh, sustainable over time. And there's also been other, you know, price supports, a minimum price guarantee for crops um, to attempt to help Mexican farmers compete minimally against uh, U.S. agribusiness, which just flooded the market after after NAFTA. Right. Just dumping Mm -hmm. onto the Mexican market. One of the big fights now is that AMLO is trying to keep GMO corn out, and the Biden administration has taken that to um, a USMCA panel. They're just they're they're, uh, they're challenging that one. So you know, during times like the pandemic, you would have families where you know a lot of times you'll have grandparents living with the families. That the grandparents would be receiving the pension, the children would be receiving the stay in school scholarships. And maybe somebody would be receiving Sembrando Vida or farm support um, um, help, right? And so all that time, the Financial Times was like, why isn't AMLO bailing out business? It's like the social programs are already in place. We're not just going to throw money to businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mexico into debt. And then, you know, AMLO's always been worried about you know, the Argentina model of getting indebted to the IMF. You know, and, 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 and just stuck not, in that not, cycle, and then being in there forever. 
Not, not to cut you off, but I just think, again, this, this is something that like Americans have to understand that there are different contexts um, for, for politics. So in the U.S., one of the major arguments that's coming right. from the progressive left is like, oh, well, you know, we can expand and like utilize the, the power of, of the United States Federal Reserve to like greatly expand. Not, you know, I'm not against that as, as an argument, but conditions are very, very different in other countries. A lot of other countries do not have the capacity um, to rack up tremendous amounts of debt, as you just mentioned. Argentina has been strangled by global finance forever now. Um, you know, so like, you know, there, 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 there can be tensions with maybe some of the ways that Onlo talks about that and things like that. I'm not saying that none of those criticisms aren't warranted, but also you just have to remember yeah. that like these are very different contexts from the American uh, one. I think that's a huge point, and that goes for the entire global south, right? Um, these countries don't have margin for error. No. So in the U.S., you know, every couple of years that these stupid games about, you know, raising the debt limit and then the default and whatever else, you know, uh, you know these ridiculous games that have now become commonplace in U.S. politics, uh, a global South country couldn't even play with something like that. They couldn't even play with something like that. So you actually find them being much more disciplined in that respect and getting out a lot of that, you know, gamesmanship. Right. Um, this is a really important, um, a really important point, because. Again, if you don't see it in context, what Amla is saying can sound conservative, right? Mm -hmm. Like we want to have a balanced budget or we don't want to have too big budget deficits, whatever else. Um, let's recall that, you know, the, these ratings agencies like Moody's and Standard and Poor, they're there like vultures just waiting to downgrade Mexico's debt rating or the debt rating on the national oil company Pemex. And then all of a sudden they can sock these countries with higher interest payments, mm -hmm. which are killer. If Moody's, you know, the corrupt people at Moody's who are getting paid by the Peña Nieto administration, the previous administration, come in and downgrade your debt rating, all of a sudden, you know, you're paying, you know, millions and millions more um, in sovereign and sovereign debt payments, right? So that's that's an important one, right? Um, so exactly right. The idea is that <laughs> we've got to do it. We've got to be, um, you know, understand what the constraints are, right? Um, the Financial Times at one point, I wrote about this um, in, in an article in my column here in Sentido Comun, was openly saying, the Financial Times of Great Britain, you know, if AMLO is going to continue the way he's going, we'll have no choice but to basically do a run on the peso. I mean, they said it point blank. I mean, they just, you know, they said the quiet mm -hmm. part out loud, right? Uh, if you don't fall in line, we'll screw your currency. Right. So they, they, they do a bank run. They do an investment run. They try to say, we'll just pull everything out. And they hate it that the peso has actually gone up under AMLO. They hate that more than anything, that the peso is now 17 to the dollar instead of 19. Mm -hmm. They hate that mm -hmm. because if, if they can't you know control that threat of we'll screw your currency, that's one less thing they have in their in their threat toolkit. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, so talking about the peso, I mean, you know, you've seen the strengthening of, of the peso, but this has also come at, at a time of increases in wages uh, for workers. I mean, you know, what are some of the, the arguments or the reasonings uh, behind that? What AMLO did, um, he set out and said, we're going to, you know, we've got to raise wages in the country. So how do you do that? Right. Um, one of them is, you know, because his, his Philosophy has always been for the good of all, the poor come first. He said, we got to raise the wages of the people at the bottom, right? Instead of trickling down from the top, we're going to push up from the bottom. 
So pushing up from the bottom means very, very basic, very simple, raise the minimum wage, which hadn't happened in Mexico in any real way for decades. You know, their minimum wage was, you know, it was um, at a ridiculously low levels. And it's still incredibly low by U.S. standards, but it's gone up 20% a year, right? Mm. Um, and that had, you know, conservative economists saying, well, you're going to Mexico, you know, you know, have inflation. Now, they always say that, right? You can't raise wages because that will lead to inflation, right? And again, being a global South country, they're all that much more susceptible to inflationary spirals, right? That's always the argument, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it turned out it wasn't true. It turned out it wasn't true. They've raised the minimum wage 20% a year. And what inflation there has been has obviously been COVID and supply chain related and, you know, um, and such. And it's actually at 5% now in Mexico, which is, they want it to be less, but it's not, you know, not, it's not out of control, actually. And wage hikes have been <clears throat> outpacing that. So that has had an effect. There's also been the effect of more people getting into formal employment. Um, the outsourcing law that I mentioned at uh, the beginning, and then that has also pushed more people into situations where they can have mandatory profit sharing, which is also you know, a law here. There's all mandatory profit sharing. So um, that's also boosted uh, wages, right? And union activity, which we can't keep mm -hmm. out, right? I mean, we can't not mention, I mean. So that started from the beginning of AMLO's um, period, the 3220 movement in Matamoros, right? Uh, and that spilled over into uh, the rest of the marketable industry in that area, right? With mixed results. Uh, there's been um, some positive effects at U.S. automotives. And that's the other thing to mention, the union reform law, which went together with the outsourcing law, which now require um, <clears throat> secret ballot votes for union elections. All contracts had to be re-voted within four years. So that just came, that's just up now, because a lot of these contracts were contracts that were negotiated you know, beforehand with no worker mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> input and basically not, not even knowing what the contract said, right? So they've managed to, um, and this is a country where 90% historically of unions were, you know, company unions or white unions or bosses unions. So just the be fact that they're beginning to break the back of that old connection between the PRI party and controlled corrupt unions has been huge. <clears throat> so you now see some automotive, some good workplaces with independent unions, right? And that's also helped, right? Mm -hmm. Because they've managed to negotiate some better contracts, right? All of that together is, 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 part, of, is part of what's going on. So it's not just the social programs. Um, it's the minimum wage increase. It's the outsourcing reform. It's the union reform, right? Um, it's all of these things it's all these things together, I think, which I think is important, right? Um, instead of just trying to isolate one, isolate one variable, right? And that has been an important reason why Morena Sopapo is a party, right? Mm -hmm. It's like another big mystery. Why is Morena polling at 65% right now? Well, I mean, I, 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 they, help, I'm sorry. they help workers. They help workers. Right now, <laughs> they're negotiating. It's, it's not that hard. So one of the new pieces of legislation that's on, you know, the agenda in this session of Congress is to reduce the working week from 48 hours to 40 hours. Wow. That's in huge. Mexico, millions of people still work 48 hour work, work weeks. So they've never had a weekend in their lives. 
Seriously. There are people mm-hmm. who've never had a weekend in their lives. They've never had two days off consecutively to, to do anything. You get one day off. And sometimes it's shifting, so you don't know what day it's going to be. Right? <clears throat> so that's one. And the other one is to uh, increase the mandatory Christmas bonus from two weeks to a month worth of pay. Right? I mean, basic legislation that helps workers. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting because Edwin Ackerman came out with a really interesting piece in the New Left Review, which is talking about how in a world of what they talk about as dealignment, where the working class is abandoning traditional center-left or socialist parties, Mexico is going through an interesting phase of realignment in the sense that if you compare the 2018 voting data to the midterm election data of 2021, uh, AMLO and the Morena lost votes amongst the upper college educated class, but gained votes amongst working class voters. It kind of started locking back into place. Um, Now, if that's part of a long-term trend or a temporary trend, we'll see. But it's interesting because it's bucking what's going on in so many countries around the world. And I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, people aren't dumb. (laughs) As much as the U.S. press tries to make them out to be, you know, like when we talked about the last time about these dumb (laughs) people flooding Mexico City to follow the worship leader, um, they see their wages going up. You know, they see working conditions getting a little better you know they see their grandparents being able to get a pension right? mm-hmm. having to finance them and, and you know they see they see real tangible efforts in increasing uh standards of living and it's you know it's pretty basic stuff but it seems now esoterically complicated to the u.s media well, I mean, you, you know, you have to feel bad for folks if like your entire career has been trying to teach you one thing to be sort of introduced to something new. You know, sometimes it takes a little while, um, yeah. you know, and I, I want to say um, just really fast. We opened up talking about the UAW uh, today. And, you know, this is just what happens when you have this kind of, of space here. Um, here's a Louis Leon, who is a really great uh, reporter at Labor Notes, uh, mm-hmm. tweeting out this morning that Mexican auto workers tell their co-workers to stand in solidarity with U.S. auto workers and reject a speed up because um, in, in the event of a strike against the big three auto companies in the U.S., the companies are going to increase line speeds in factories across Mexico to move production solidarity. And like that's a huge development, um, one for you know the, the fight against the, the big three in, in this country, but also for building that kind of international solidarity. I also just wanted to note um, that somebody asked um, um, if, uh, you know, there's much communication going on. This is apparently there are like WhatsApp chat groups um, and regular meetings with UAWD um, members uh, via Zoom. So like that kind of international solidarity in the union movement is something that we're always really happy to see. But I want to pivot a little bit um, to talking about what's next, because, you know, one of my worries from the get go with OMLO has been, What's going to happen with his movement when he is no longer uh, the president? Um, You know, because obviously he does have a big personality. He has a lot of sway in politics. You know, so the fear is he's been able to do a lot. But if he's no longer, you know, the president, um, then this movement might sort of collapse on itself. Are my worries, uh, you know, unfounded? And also, you know, what's next? I mean, what is uh, the the next presidential cycle looking like uh, for Morena? No, they're they're definitely concerns to be to be taken into account, right? Um, it's always, you know, one thing to point out, a lot of people don't um, know this, is that Mex- presidents can't run for re-election in Mexico. So if people are wondering why AMLO isn't running again, if he's so popular, he can't, right? So that's, 
that's the issue there. There, so they're just in the kind of the pre-phase now, kind of similar to U.S. primaries. And so we now know who the Morena candidate is going to be. And her name is Claudia Scheinbaum. She's the governor of Mexico City. I say governor because Mexico City is now a, a state. It kind of did what Washington, D.C. has never been able to do, which is become a state with its own state constitution. And this is actually a good, this is a good development because the two main contenders for Morena were Scheinbaum, and Marcelo Obrard, who was the foreign relations secretary, who's done a good job, but mm -hmm. he's obviously more conservative than Scheinbaum. I mean, he's, you know, there's no doubt about that. He's more conservative and more pro-U.S. Um, than, than, than she is. So you also had this good situation where, in a, you know, a big, kind of a big tent party, as Morena has to be, because it's a presidential system, you know, so you have to have a big tent party. There are, you know, people from the center to the left in, in, in Morena. The left candidate won, mm -hmm. you know. Um, the left candidate who had the chance to win won. So that's good. Um, Scheinbaum is, um, she has a good record in Mexico City. She's brought down crime significantly, more so than at the national level, although there's been some good recent indicators there. Um, <clears throat> she's set up these educational cultural centers called uh, Pilares. Um, she's set up um, a cable, um, cable car network to get out to those um, poorest communities up on the hillside around Mexico City, kind of like La Paz and Bolivia, those cable cars. Mm -hmm. It's been, it's been, it's been good. You know? So I think, you know, she was, she was AMLO's favorite. There was, there was no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. um, now Obrard is crying foul and saying he's going to split off. You know, he may wind up doing that. I don't think that's going to cut into Morena's support that much. It might even cut into the opposition support more. Hmm. Because Ebrard tends to draw his support from that narrow band of, you know, middle class in Mexico. Uh, that the same, when they say middle class in Latin America, you're talking about like upper middle class, right? They say classes medias in Latin America. You're not talking about this American idea that the Democrats are just the middle class. La clase media in, America in Latin America is usually the upper class, right? Mm -hmm. So Ebrard would draw from that same band of voters as the opposition would. So probably would split the opposition vote more than anything. Um, you know, Abra, uh, Scheinbaum has been on the left her entire life. She was in the student movement uh, as a student in the UNAM. She was AMLO's um, uh, environmental secretary when he was uh, mayor of Mexico City. Um, she's an academic. She's um, actually an, uh, she's a doctorate in engineering. She's a specialist in climate change. You know, pretty timely for that. Um, so she's, she's very well prepared. Mm -hmm. The danger of Scheinbaum, and she has to prove herself, <clears throat> is to have that have that touch that AMLO has very naturally. You know, AMLO comes from small town Tabasco. He's got a regional accent, and he's just <clears throat> he naturally communicates to the working mm -hmm. class people all over um, Mexico. He spent years in this kind of never-ending tour, going to every municipality in the country a um, couple of times, number numerous times. And he's got a natural knack at that. Now that you can't teach. Um, and Scheinbaum is a Mexico City person, you know, born and raised in, and born and raised in Mexico City, um, of European uh, descent, right? Actually, her family uh, is Jewish. She'd be the first Jewish president of, of Mexico, first woman and first Jewish president um, from Eastern Europe, people who are fleeing the situation in Eastern Europe, right? Um, but can she communicate to you know, a population mm -hmm. that is 
you know, 80% mestizo and indigenous. Um, and to rural populations and people who aren't part of that Mexico City, you know, concentration. And one-on-one -on -one interviews, she's very good. But I think sometimes she's still a little bit of, still a little bit wooden on, you know, on the big platform. On the stage, yeah. On the stage, you know, that's going to be a challenge. Now, um, I think it's less of a problem in the sense that, you know, the, the right thinks that they can um, win this election through marketing and, you know, consultants and kind of the standard grab bag of tricks, right? But really, it's an election about parties this time around. You know, polls are showing that any candidate that Morena has, even their weakest candidate, would defeat uh, the conservative alliance. Because it's about, you know, when you when you have policies that help the working class, it turns it into a party election rather than a personal-based election. You know, this party does this. Hmm? So I think Scheinbaum, a little bit of the pressure is off in that sense, that the Morena label is pretty strong, right? Mm -hmm. Morena now has set itself up a pretty high bar for itself. It wants to get to a two-thirds majority to be able to pass constitutional reforms. That's, that's going to be a high bar, <clears throat> but I, I find it hard to see any scenario save, uh, you know, an unsuspected economic crisis. I, I find it hard to see any scenario in which Morena loses next year. Well, oh, okay. Well, that's that's exciting. I mean, um, could you well, to, to 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 sort of go through the the counter argument? Could you talk about the the opposition a little bit um, and uh, uh, Socio Galvez? Um, who's uh, getting some favorable press in the U.S. too right now. Yeah, what a surprise. What a surprise. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting that the Mexican right wing, in order, because the Mexican right wing is financed by USAID, by the National Endowment for Democracy. They don't give it directly to the parties because they can't. So they give it through allied NGOs, you know, and um, organizations that pretend to be think tanks or pretend to be, you know, civil society organizations, right? So the Mexican right wing, knowing that they need to get this money from USAID and National Endowment, right, have this great discourse that they are the bastion of democracy, democratic resistance against the authoritarian populace known as Lopez, right? Um, and they say Lopez, too, because Lopez is a common sounding name. They don't even say Lopez Obrador, they say Lopez, right? Using <laughs> uh, classism. So they're the, bell they're the bastion of democracy against Lopez, right? But then when they were deciding who their candidate was going to be, they said, well, we're going to have a process with forums and we're going to have opinion polls and then we're going to have a primary election. And Tocho Gavez, they were trying to play her up and they put all kinds of money into, you know, trying to you know, inflate her image. And then another candidate, Beatriz Paredes, started rising up. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, Tocho Gavez could lose the primary. Let's cancel the primary. So they did. They canceled, they canceled the primary. So wait, wait, I'm sorry not to cut you off, but like after years of yeah. the, the cries we've been getting in the U.S. from the yeah. opposition is like the threat of AMLO um, to democracy, right? He did something so horrible, for example, like holding a referendum on his presidency halfway through his yeah. referendum. Right. And this real authoritarian, anti-democratic, this now super democratic force is canceling the primary because they didn't get the coordination that they wanted. <laughs> their their hand-picked candidate, the hand-picked candidate of the Mexican oligarchy, you know, Claudia Gonzalez, who is the son of the guy who runs Kimberly Clark um, here in, in Mexico. And they just, they hate Amlo to death. 
And he, fed, he set up one of these NGOs that gets this USAID money, right? This is a really unheralded story that should be known more in the US. Where USAID money and where national endowment money goes. And basically it goes to help uh, conservative interests uh, in foreign countries, right? Mm. Uh, USAID is also funding a, a group in uh, Mexico called the Mexican Institute for Competitiveness, right? Another front organization who is also funded by the Atlas Network. Interesting, isn't it? The USAID and Atlas Network, this international um, network of people, disciples of Hayek, uh, are, are funding the same organizations in Mexico, right? Virtually unreported in the US press. <clears throat> so anyway, um, <clears throat> Xochitl Galvez is a senator from the PAN, the conservative uh, party. And so a lot of money, <clears throat> including US money, is now going into trying to make this image of her as uh, this uh, indigenous uh, rags to riches um, success story. You know? She came from poverty and she was selling jello in the market in order to pay for her studies. And, you know, this plucky person set up a business and became a self made uh, person. <clears throat> This is the story they're trying to tell. So, of course, they leave out a side of tremendous corruption uh, about Xochitl Gavis, not, not mentioned in the U.S. press, right? Kind of very standard issue corruption for the Mexican right wing, which is using her position in previous governments like Vicente Fox, right, and Felipe Calderón to benefit her own businesses, right? You mm. get into power and you start shoveling contracts to your businesses, which you're not supposed to do as a, you know, as a person in is down. Um, in office or in a government, right? Um, and then when it came time to, as a senator to make her declaration, her declaration of all of her uh, assets and, and such, mentioned nothing, mentioned none of it, right? Hiding assets, hiding conflicts of interest, hiding when she was um, mayor of a section of Mexico City, these conflicts of interests of um, helping real estate developers get permits, with kickbacks. I mean, it's just, it's very a standard story mm. here, very much a standard story. Now, that has been covered in, in Mexico, right? Not the US. Because the idea now, um, we have to build up Sochil Galvez as, you know, um, this, this, this great uh, bootstraps kind of story, right? And mm. you see that's going to happen. They're going to try to invert the thing where Xochitl Galvez is now the plucky hero of the people and Claudia Scheinbaum, who comes from, you know, relatively privileged circumstances, um, is going to be the aloof, out of touch um, academic or however they're going to try to, how they're going to try to paint her. You can see it coming, you can see it coming a mile down the road, how they're going to try to play, play this one, right? Well, I mean, it's very clear. And like, there was a, a piece in the Washington Post recently um, about about um, Galvez, um, and you know, it goes through a lot of these kind of uh, tropes that uh, you know you just noted. But one thing that is very not notable, I have to say, is you know, one of the things that they're sort of you know focusing on, and like, understandably, right, understandable, right, the the historic moment of you know potentially having a woman, um, you know, president. Um, well, they, they, they failed to mention uh, Scheinbaum one time in the entire piece, right? You know, so it ends up being like, look, this, you know, this, this strong, tough woman is coming up against the mean and the, the implication here of like probably misogynistic AMLO, right? Uh, fearless against this misogynist and forgets to mention what's going on in Morena. 
Yeah, isn't that funny? An interesting omission. <laughs> and it's also funny because the Mexican right wing, including Xochitl Gavez herself, have spent years saying that uh, Claudia Scheinbaum is protected by AMLO. She's hide, he hides, she hides behind AMLO. It's, mm-hmm. if you want to talk about misogynistic tropes, that's the one. That she's not her own person, that he props her up, that she hides behind him when things get tough. That's been coming out of all of their mouths for years, right? But that's, you know, that's not that's not discussed, right? Um, it's going to be interesting to see how how they how they continue to do that um, down the line. You know, they can't continue to ignore Scheinbaum forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there she is. <laughs> she uh, she won uh, the the morning nomination. She's going to be doing a national uh, tour. And it's funny that if you look at Xochitl Galvez's policies, they're made to order for Washington because they get the USAID money, right? So she wants to privatize Pemex again, right? She wants to open up the state oil company to private contracts that AMLO froze, right? She wants, and she said this, all those social programs should be temporary because otherwise they make people dependent. Then she walked that back really quickly. They're like, what, are you going to take, pen- take the pension away from my grandmother? No, 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 no. I didn't mean that. Right? Let me clarify. And then she couldn't really clarify because that's what she'd said, that the social programs should be temporary because they create dependence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, you, you go down the line, it's, it's you know, it's, it's very much standard Washington uh, can't that she's now, mm-hmm. you know, regurgitating. Right? And you can tell she's really out of her element at the presidential level. She would have been a good conservative candidate for governor of Mexico City. And she'd probably put up a pretty good race for that. But she's decided to go for the big one, and you know she doesn't have the she doesn't have the the metal M E T T L E I think for it. Um, so she's been surprised that she's getting criticized. Hmm. You, know, you know that happens. Well, that's, what, yeah, that's what happens. Well, um, I, I really appreciate this so much. I, I think I, I do have to ask you. I'm, I'm sorry to, to be, you know, U.S. centric for a second, but um, you know, there's been a lot of, of talk right now in, in the U.S., particularly here in the state of Texas, from the Republican Party about willingness to actually send. Um, troops into Mexico. Um, and I think one thing that's important to know for people who haven't been following what's going on with Texas at the border, one of the arguments that um, Greg Abbott is making for why he can do border policy, right, which by the way is not a power of a governor of any yeah, U.S. state, um, is because he is claiming that Mexico is invading Texas and Texas has the right to defend its borders, right, which is an absolutely asinine um, argument. And the, the legal challenges that we're getting from the Biden administration by the way, on what's going on the border. They're not about, you know, a governor should not be able to do border policy. They're that the Abbott administration did not consult the Army Corps of Engineers before building a, a structure in navigable water. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I just wanted to ask, um, you know, yeah, sure. your, your perspective and what you're, what you're hearing. You know, when people hear this kind of bluster, is this sort of like this is campaign talk? I'm, I'm just curious what the perspective from Mexico might be on, on some of these kind of inflammatory things we're seeing here. You know, um, um, the Mexican public, by and large, understand that it's campaign bluster. I found the Mexican public to be much more politically sophisticated in general than the U.S. public, right? which isn't hard. <laughs> um, but it doesn't make it not dangerous anyway, right? This idea of we're going to send in special forces, or we're going to send in drones, or we're going to um, label the cartels as foreign terrorist organizations, really because they want to go up to China. That's, that was, that's what that's all about, right? 
um, the whole fentanyl issue there, right? Um, let's just talk about what would, what that what would happen if that were if that were to occur, right? They'd be, you know, because cartels don't have places that say, hi, we're cartels here, right? They'd be bombing populated areas, as the U.S. does all over the world. They'd be bombing hospitals, schools, neighborhoods. They'd be bombing and killing and maiming thousands upon thousands of innocent people. They'd create migration flows 50 to 100 times more than anything that's ever been seen up till now, right? And they'd be setting themselves up for retaliatory attacks against U.S. populations, certainly by cartels within, um, you know, cartel allies mm -hmm. operating within, within the U.S. This has not been well well thought out at all, right? And obviously, and besides all that, it wouldn't stop anything. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't stop anything, right, at all, right? Um, which is why AMLO has been so very, you know, clear on this, right? You know, some people said... The, the more moderate position is um, we're going to get cooperation from the Mexico government, this Mexican government, to send a U.S. troops in. Not as long as Moreno's in power. Mm -hmm. way. No, <clears throat> it would be an act of war. It would be an invasion of foreign soil, and it would create a blowback effect, you know, kind of channeling Chalmers Johnson here, a blowback effect here that people haven't even begun to imagine, even begun to imagine. <clears throat> And even if that never happens, even if it's all just campaign bluster, who are the most hurt by this? I think it's the Mexican-American community mm -hmm. who, again, are getting, uh, you know, this massive media campaign against them saying that basically you are drugging us. You are invading us. You are making our kids die by fentanyl. <clears throat> you know, that sets them up to all kinds of discrimination, hate crimes and ice breaking down their doors and all this. Right. Mm hmm. That, I and think, violence. is... I mean, literal yeah. vigilante yeah. violence as well, too, right? Violence, I mean, right? We, that's, that's not hypothetical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's I think, is the clearest and most tangible effect of this, harming the Mexican-American population within the U.S. right now, even if, you know, they never, um, they never carry out what they say. But all that does, and this is fueled by all this bad press, you know, we've, you know, thank mm -hmm. I appreciate this recurring space you've given me. And we joke about it because it's funny um, how bad the press coverage is of of um, of Mexico, and not even Fox News, which also has terrible coverage, of course. But you know, supposedly liberal. We're talking about supposedly liberal publications come out with this garbage, right? It's funny, but it has these kinds of effects that all these people read all this stuff and they say, "Well, the New York Times says it," you know, the right wing is saying it too, and it creates this idea of Mexico as a caricature. Mm -hmm. President as a caricature, uh, a drug-ridden, violence-plagued shithole country, right? Where you know anything we could do would be better than the way it is right now. Mm -hmm. right? That's that, that's the logic. Instead of a country with you know uh, an incredible historic heritage and challenges, you know, they've gone back centuries, which is doing some interesting things that maybe we could, if not learn from, because I think Americans are far too arrogant to learn from anybody, at least leave alone. Mm -hmm. At least leave alone. <clears throat> that would be enough. But they won't. <laughs> and I think the most extreme, distorted aspect of that is the idea of let's bomb them. You know, this kind of mm -hmm. caveman mentality of, you know, because they're an easy punch bag, or they seem to be an easy punching bag. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> 
every presidential cycle. Well, you know, Kurt, I, I can't thank you enough um, for all of your coverage and, and reporting on this, uh, you know, stateside. It, it does it does make a difference. And, you know, for people who aren't already following uh, Kurt, there's links below um, to where to follow him on Twitter, to his articles. Uh, and always appreciate being able to do this with you, friend, and hope to do it again soon. Well, I appreciate it. You know, you guys, amongst all of the uh, podcasters and the YouTubes and all that, the whole echo system of, of, of left um discourse in, in the U.S., you guys are the only ones that I know of that give this consistent coverage of Mexico. You guys are the only ones. So thanks for that. <clears throat> Thank you. All right, folks. Yeah, it was great talking with Kurt. No, it's always fun. I mean, he's he's good. He's, uh, he's able to, uh, I don't know. Throw some punches and also give in-depth analysis, which is uh, not always a combination that comes in twos. But, folks, uh, we're going to go over the postgame, patreon.com slash reckoning, where we got a treat. I mean, this is something, I mean, can we say we called it, Matt? I don't know. Um, we've we've covered this well, a little yeah. bit on this program. I mean, we, we did it early on when we started to see, hmm, it seems like a logical um, position of somebody who is against the, the quote-unquote duopoly. Uh, to support an independent socialist candidate for president. Um, but there were these kind of early cracks, and uh, it sort of blew up over the last week. Um, so Matt and I are going to be talking a little bit about uh, Jimmy Dore and uh, Cornell West over in the fun half of our postgame. Um, yeah, no, I saw that, and I looked at our headline. was literally like, Jimmy turns on Cornell. It's like, oh, we saw this news already. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. So we're going to be jumping into that. Please, though, folks, if you're not already follow uh, Kurt, Read his pieces in in, in Jacobin. Um, you know, it, it's not overstating the case that it's really important. Um, I think for for our audience in general, and just like American leftists, um, to be a little bit more cued in, uh, not just to global affairs, but man, if you're going to start and do one, it's like let's you know, Mexico is one you really should be um, in touch with because, as he was saying, it's like not just are these folks you know demonized regularly in our politics, literal you know U.S. money is going into that country to make their life worse by fueling the right way. So there's a role here, um, you know, to play directly um, for, for those of us who want to see that end. So, and the first step is going to be tuning in and paying attention. So appreciate Kurt and, you know, always happy to do those segments and, you know, folks keep up with him, but let's go post game um, 135. We'll be talking third party corner West Jimmy Dore. And last thing I'll say, if you're leaving us calls, as we said before, um, tonight, they got to be 30 seconds. Sorry, but that's just how it's going to be tonight. If they're 30 seconds, we'll play them. If not, we'll have to get to them at another time. Um, so if you got a phone call you want to put in, that's the, uh, the parameters. Um, see you all in just a couple minutes. Peace.